I'll try this. Where were we? Good morning. <laughs> the Old Testament is challenging to preach on, particularly when your microphone doesn't work. You sure? Okay. It's rich and interesting to read. But we preachers need to be mindful of the question, so what? What does this mean to the listener in their lived life experience on Monday morning? Some texts are difficult to live with and understand. How do we handle the tough texts of the Bible? What do we do with the long chapters of ceremonial law and instruction that were particular to Israel? And perhaps most puzzling, how do stories, which is I think about 75% of scripture, act as authoritative? And traditionally there have been a number of ways that those sorts of passages have been dealt with. They might be an example to follow. We might be discerning in them timeless, timeless truths or principles. Or we just plain ignore them and go on to the New Testament. An Opawa nonagenarian, yes it was you, <laughs> told me that my sermon a few years ago on the gruesome story of the Benjamite concubine from Judges was the first time in his 90-some years that he'd ever heard that passage preached on. I've come to the conviction that these, these solutions about example or timeless truths are not really good enough. Now take the approach of using Bible stories as examples. In our striving to be biblical, we often end up handling scripture in a lesser way than we should. And there's a writer who refers to this propensity to preach the deadly bees. Be like be good, be wise, be disciplined. For example, don't be like lazy Esau who sold his birthright for a plate of porridge, but be like wise Jacob who seized the opportunity that God had placed in front of him. The problem is that when we handle scripture like that, we end up with a morality lesson. The result is this reduction of the scriptures to a mere moralism or a set of principles. One, an old flatmate of mine, I remember when I was trying to share my faith with him, he, he saw scripture as being rules to live by. The trouble with that though is scripture ends up being not much more than Aesop's fables. You take the book of Ruth that I've been talking about recently. It's the story of a family um, that leaves... Bethlehem in, in the promised land and, and they go to Moab because there's a famine. Two sons get married there and in quick succession, dad and the two sons die. So there's three women left. There's Naomi the mum, Ruth the daughter-in-law, Orpah the daughter-in-law. Well, Ruth and Naomi go back to Israel and through a series of real God events, Good is brought out of that. They're poor as church mice, but there's a relative there, and the relative ends up marrying Ruth, and the line goes on, and everyone lives happily ever after. 
Now, if you take Ruth, it's easy to reduce it to a morality play. And the moral or the point might be something like, be faithful like Ruth and God will look after you too. Will he? Because I think the biblical truth is that there are no guarantees that if we are faithful, then we will be okay. Because actually, that's more like Hinduism and karma than it is like Christianity. The promises of God, I think, if you really boil it down, are two. One, he will never leave us or forsake us. And the second is that our treasure in heaven is safe. I'm not aware of anything else that you can take to the bank as a rock-solid guarantee. In my observation, good Christians die prematurely, suffer from violence, whatever, just like everybody else. And they have the additional struggle of thinking, where the heck is God now that it's all gone to pot? There are many very poor Christians in the world. Someone I knew was in a um, taxi in an Asian city, and he got talking to the taxi driver, who was quite keen to market his sister's sexual services to his fare that morning. My friend was a senior missions worker, and he said, well, no, I am a Christian, so I will not be meeting your sister. Thank you. The taxi driver smiled from ear to ear at this and said, sir, so am I. My friend said, well, why then are you trying to pimp out your sister to me? And the taxi driver said, ah, I see, sir. You have never been poor, have you? He hadn't. So wisely, he shut up at that point. There are no guarantees. We often approach the Old Testament, I think in a very moralistic way, because we're not too sure what we should do with it otherwise. Be good like Ruth or Joshua or Nehemiah and you will be saved is not the Christian gospel. That's salvation by works, not by grace. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. The other way to see the Old Testament, heroes, is as types of Christ. So in Ruth, you know, Boaz is this sort of precursor for Jesus, who's the kinsman redeemer for all of us. Now, Boaz does come out of the story really, really well. Very nice guy. But most of the Old Testament heroes have big-time feats of clay. I want to approach this issue and ask the question, what is Ruth really all about? And why is it in the Bible? Now take a look at this photo. You recognise them? Stunning, aren't they? It looks like they're where? In the middle of the desert? Yeah, well they're not. They're actually on the edge of Cairo. When you go up a few thousand feet, it looks quite different. I'm aiming for a 20,000 feet view of the Book of Ruth. And if I don't manage it, please be gentle with me afterwards. It'd be nice. 
Anyway, to be able to do that, I need to return to the beginning. In Genesis 3, there's this record records the story of God casting humanity out of Eden, this, this perfect world that God had created for them as his judgment on their disobedience. Now, as well as prophesying difficulty for humanity and how life was going to be, God also cursed the serpent, the Satan, in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity, hostility, conflict, biff, whatever you want to call it, strife, between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now the church has understood that from a very long time ago has been the first messianic prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That a descendant of Eve would be in conflict with, with the Satan. So the conflict goes right back to then had its high point at the cross and will continue until judgment day when evil will be no more. Amen. One artist has depicted it this way. That behind the pain and the hope of human experience is a cosmic conflict between God and the devil. The Lord wants to redeem his sin-broken creation while the devil wants to feed on us. We live in a war zone. Much like the people of Kashmir in West India, which apparently is a stunningly beautiful place, but you can't go there because India and Pakistan have been fighting over it for decades. It's a war zone. And that's where we live. And so the biblical layout, biblical narrative has two layers. There's that which we can see here and experience, like in the book of Ruth, and then there's this deeper layer underneath. We have a lot of modern stories like this. Here's one of them. Star Wars. On the surface, there's this rebellion against this oppressive empire, but the deeper and decisive conflict is between the Sith Lord and the Jedi Luke Skywalker. If Skywalker can be, spoiler alert, if Skywalker can be turned to the dark side of the force, then all is lost to the rebellion on the surface. And the same sort of two-tiered structures there in the Harry Potter books, um, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, it's common. Do you know this painting? I love it, I've shown it before. I imagine, and this isn't to trivialise this, that God and the devil are having a high-stakes poker game. And we are the prize in the middle. We are the pot. In Job, the devil's bet was that Job only loved and served God because God had richly blessed him. Take away those blessings and he would curse God and die. Job stayed true. So God won that hand. The story of the Old Testament from Genesis 3.15 that I mentioned before, right through to that first Christmas, is God trying to build and preserve a faithful people that Jesus as the Messiah would come from. Through his Messiah, you, me, and everything might be redeemed back to the kingdom of God. Now, if you look at Matthew 1, 
the very beginning of the New Testament. It's the boring bit that we usually skip on our way to the first Christmas story, the phone directory. Philip very helpfully read it this morning. Funny things happen when we're doing these things because he had no idea I was going to be talking about this. And there is Jesus' genealogy. Well, there's Abraham. Faithfully and bravely followed God's call to leave his home and return for this unseen promised land. However, Abraham slept with his wife's maidservant to have a son. And that decision has rippled down to what we're seeing now in Gaza, as both the Jewish people and the Arab people claim his, him as an ancestor. In Genesis 12, there's the story of his trip to Egypt, in which he pretended that Sarah, his wife, was in fact his sister. Pharaoh took a shine to her and added her to his harem. She paid a bit of a price for his cowardice. wonder what that was like for her and her faith in her husband. And then later on he did it again with another pagan king. Great pioneer, but he ain't husband of the year. His son Isaac tells the king of the Philistines that Rebekah, his wife, is his sister. Apple didn't fall very far from the tree. Later on, Rebekah and their second son Jacob schemed to fall an aging Isaac into giving Jacob his blessing over his brother. Wonderful family. Bet the reunions were fun. And Jacob, oh my, he's a real piece of work. He marries two sisters, Leah, who was not beautiful, and Rachel, who was, and they fought over him. Leah has four sons straight off the bat because God felt sorry for her that Jacob didn't love her, while Rachel was barren. So Rachel sends her maidservant to be with Jacob and has two sons to him, for which for her is a triumph. Leah, who's ground to a halt on the fertility front, sends her maidservant in, who bears two more sons to Jacob. What a mess. It's days of our lives on steroids. Later in Genesis, there's the story of Joseph. He with the famously many-coloured coat, whose brothers faked his death and sold him into slavery. He survives because he continued to follow God despite being falsely imprisoned and mistreated, and so he is seen as a hero of the faith. He's not in this genealogy, but his brother Judah is. Now Judah's contribution to that story is his idea to sell Joseph into slavery. And he was quite happy to tell their dad that his favourite child had been eaten by a lion. Later in Genesis 38, Judah slept with his widowed daughter-in-law, who was pretending to be a prostitute. When she fell pregnant, he led the charge to have her stoned until she pointed out that he was in fact the father, at which point he had the good grace to apologise. Clearly not a stunning human being, not a hero of the faith, but the royal line runs through him not saintly Joseph, and from his icky relationship with his daughter-in-law. So the messianic line is intact, but it's been a rocky old road. Now I imagine coming back to the poker game, Satan raises the stakes. God, your, your people won't accept a pagan brothel keeper. They think they are righteous because they are good people, not because you have made them right. And the Lord says, well, here's Rahab from Jericho. I see your rays. 
and she's in the messianic line. And Satan doubles down, he says, well, Elimelech, he likes to be comfortable if drought came. He and his family, they'll be gone to Moab. They won't be back. They'll just blend in and they'll become Chemosh-worshipping Moabites. Take away Marlon, Chilean, and Dad, and your precious messianic line will just be nothing. God won that bet because of a Moabite widow called Ruth who was attracted to his worship and his people by a bitter and angry widow called Naomi. In effect, God said, well, see Satan, people will love and worship me not because there's anything material in it for them. Matthew's genealogy continues. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abiyah, and Abiyah the father of Asaph, and so on. David was undoubtedly Israel's greatest warrior king. But oh my goodness, he was a flawed critter too. His tolerance of his daughter Tamar's rape and his ambivalent treatment of his son Absalom led to war, carnage, and death. His murder of his soldier Uriah and taking of his widow Bathsheba to be his, fa- his wife is a particularly ugly story. This guy left a trail of bodies behind him. And from that murderous and adulterous relationship with Bathsheba comes Solomon, who was ultimately led astray because of his habit of marrying pagan wives who worshipped other gods. His son Rehoboam, what, you getting the trend here? was so arrogant and foolish he caused the kingdom to be split as the northern ten tribes went off by their selves. They quickly succumbed to the worship of the Canaanite gods, probably because they just wanted to fit in with their neighbours. Later they were invaded and disappeared into exile, and they just blended in with their captives. There is no lost tribes. They just made lies for themselves in Assyria. They were what we used to call, when I was a young adult, Barry Lenders, blenders. They just merged in. Well, the remaining tribes of Judah and Benjamin, southern kingdom, have a further 12 kings before. They too are invaded in exile. And here's their report card. So, idolater, the ones that say yes, well, they worship people other than God. Allowed shrines, well, they let the locals their people worship other people. Raided the temple for cash? Who amongst us has not done that? Josiah is the one genuinely godly leader who does not worship idols or tolerate their worship. Hence, he's the only one name here that's used much. Not many people call their kids Asa or Manasseh. Now, the five others are not idolaters either, but they tolerate the people worshipping Canaanite gods. And two of them raided the temple treasury when they needed more cash. You wouldn't be impressed if I did that, would you? Don't think I haven't thought about it. But if you caught me, my feet wouldn't touch the floor, would they? On the way out the door. And the other six, well, they're just out and out idol worshipping pagans. Now, in amongst Satan doing quite well in this period, winning a few hands, there are a number of prophets trying to steer Judah's kings back to God. 
And one of them was a bloke called Elisha. And listen to this episode in his life from 2 Kings. When an attendant of the man of God rose, and that's Elisha, rose early in the morning and went out, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. The servant said, Alas, master, what shall we do? He replied, Do not be afraid, for there are more with us than there are with them. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of his servant, and he saw the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There were angelic reinforcements there. Elisha's servant was given a glimpse of the spiritual battle being fought in the shadows, the card game. Now back to Matthew. And after the, after the deportation to Babylon, the exile, Jakim, somebody, was the father of another bloke, who was also the father of another guy. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, these names I can read, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. God judges his people, allows them to be taken off into Babylonian exile because they were just so enslaved in idolatry. Surely this is the winning play, thinks the devil. Got to be game over. But no, under Nehemiah and Ezra, a faithful remnant returns later to rebuild the temple. This lot would cross the road to avoid an idol as they know its price. And their leaders are the ancestors of the Pharisees who we encounter in Jesus in the Gospels, who were very strong on religious purity and very anti-idolatry. Now, most of those folks there are no-names. The one thing that they all have in common is that they're part of Jesus' family line. God brought the Saviour Messiah Jesus into our world through them. Now, I don't imagine Jesus' grandfather Jacob wasn't a particularly exceptional person. And I'm sure that he would be surprised and delighted to see that he made it into the scriptures and who his grandson was. But he probably lived out his life in obscurity. And then in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. Here in the suburbs of Christchurch on an overcast Sunday morning, let's be frank. Most of us are not rock stars. And we all have feet of clay. So it sounds like us. Now sin does matter. But the glorious thing about the gospel is that God can produce fruit in us and through us despite us and our sinfulness. The golden thread of salvation history runs through some quite alarming Old Testament characters, as I hope you've seen. And it continues to run through those of us who've repented of our sins and are trusting Jesus to lead us through life. 
Paul wrote this to the Ephesians. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, so you and I, the wisdom of God and its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, Satan and his side of the card table. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose for always that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. You and I are part of that continuing unfolding story of God's salvation. Just as the unknown in Jesus' genealogy were and the rat, bag, rat bags whose rap sheets I have gone through today. My story, your story, their story all sit inside God's bigger salvation story. And us coming together as one universal church, God lays down his cards and they are winning cards. Circling back to Ruth. The key verses in Ruth, I think, are these at the end of chapter 4. Now these are the descendants of Perez. Salmon of Boaz, Boaz of Obed, Obed of Jesse, and Jesse of David, and David ultimately of Jesus. Ruth is not in the Bible because she is an example for us to follow. Although she is inspiring and it's not wrong to be inspired by her, and I'm not dissing that. But she's in the Bible, the story, because God's messianic line progressed onwards through her down to King David and from him to the Lord Jesus Christ. I got you a couple of weeks ago to reflect on your significant points in your life, significant people. Uh, knitting markers, is that the... Stitch markers, thank you, stitch markers. Our stories, our anchor points. You might feel inadequate to share those with your friend who's interested in the faith because you might not explain it all that well or you might not be able to answer all her questions. You might like to serve, but you feel unworthy. You might have your head down because of shame or fear or embarrassment. If they knew who I really was, they'd shun me. Half the people in this room feel that way. Newsflash. Well, if adulterers and murderers and all the rabble that I've mentioned can be employed by God to produce spiritual fruit back then, then you can do that in your life too. If obscurities can serve him then, then we can serve him now. On Monday, on Tuesday, can I urge you just to be open to the possibility of spiritual conversations with the pagans in your life. And if there's a Christian friend that's out of sorts, ask them how they are and be prepared to listen. And just encourage. If you've always wanted to do something here, but you don't wait to be asked, come have a chat. Ruth is in the Bible because the story glorifies God, who saves his people through the least of us. Ruth, this pagan who grew up in a hideous culture, and Naomi, a bitter, angry believer, are a key part 
of the salvation story. If he can save them, well, the, then the Spirit can lead you into freedom while saving the pagans that are near and dear to you. You might be their kinsmen redeemers. You've done exceptionally well to stay with me. Thank you. I've printed out some extra copies that are at the front door if you want to go back, so I appreciate there's a lot in this. But thank you for your kind attentions. If you could, musicians could please come up, we're going to close with a song. Uh, please stand. I think this last song is one of Jan's prayers that God will be God of Christchurch and God of New Zealand. So let's sing about that this morning. You're the God of the city, you're the king of these people, you're the Lord of this nation, you are, you're the light in this darkness, you're the hope to the hopeless, you're the peace to the restless, you are, there is no one like our God, there is no one like you, God. Greater things have yet to come, greater things are still to be done in this city. Greater things have yet to come, greater things are still to be done here. You're the Lord of creation, the creator of all things, you're the king above all kings. You are, you're the strength and the weakness, you're the love to the broken, you're the joy and the sadness. You are, there is no one like our God, there is no one like you, God. Greater things have yet to come, greater things are still to be done in this city. shines from hearts to life with praise for you and love for you in this city. Greater things have yet to come, greater things are still to be done in this city. Greater things have yet to come, greater things are still to be done here. There is no one like our God. There is no one like our God. There is no one like you, God. There is no one like you, there will be a pile of annual reports. If you're visiting here, 
please feel free to grab one. They're not just for the special people. It'll give you a good insight into who we are and how we are. Anyway, I'm going to close our worship today with a benediction. God bless your journey. The people and places, talking and listening, giving and receiving, fellowship, loneliness, sorrow and thankfulness. May all you embrace, build and strengthen you on your daily walk with God. Amen. Thank you.